0: This is The Right Direction, where we talk to professional storytellers and writers, and we discuss their craft and how they sell it. I'm your host, A.G. MacDonald, and let's get started with the show. Okay, we are here today with Chris Panettier and he is here to talk about writing dystopian and writing um, sci-fi. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know you've got a book, The Phlebotomist, coming out now.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for having me. And um yeah, I I have my my debut is called The Phlebotomist and it comes out September 8th, which is in I think 5 days. And it is with Angry Robot Books. And yeah, I mean, you said dystopian and sci-fi. It's an interesting blend of a few of those and maybe a few others. Um, but Angry Robot is sort of known for uh, putting out works that sort of straddle uh, two or more genres. So um that is it's it really found the perfect home um with Angry
0: Robot. Yep. No, I think it definitely did. And I think it's such a cool concept. Um and I mean I, I don't kind of want to go into it, I guess, because I don't want to give away anything I'm not meant to because it's not actually out yet. Um, but would you explain the concept or at least what everyone can know about the concept so far.
1: Yeah. So this, what's funny is, you know, so as a debut, I've learned a lot of lessons and one of the lessons is there is a major spoiler for this book, but it, but if you knew it, it would, it would ruin a great surprise, but the spoiler, you find out about it on like page 60. So it's not like it's the whole book. It's not like if you knew the spoiler, it would ruin the whole book for you, but it's fun enough that I want people to discover it for themselves. So what I will say is that this book is set in the near future, 2067, and this is a time where in this unnamed country, um, the government has instituted a mandatory blood draw uh, called the harvest. And this is in order to support um, the war effort. There is an ongoing war and there are these people living in these areas called gray zones. And the folks who are lucky enough not to be in a war zone or a gray zone uh, have to give blood and they have to give a pint every 45 days. And for those who can give more, the company, the government contractor, that runs the blood collection runs the harvest will pay for it and that was a central premise that just became so interesting because blood compatibility dictates demand and the demand would dictate the price so i was able to build an entire economy based on blood type And um, as a result, society has become segregated by blood type because you have, uh, none of them are well off, but you have folks who can kind of manage, and those are your O negatives, your universal donors. And then you've got the folks all the way down at the bottom, eight blood types away uh, at AB positive, um, because their blood can only be received by other AB positives. So it's sort of naturally created this society that just sort of forced itself to be dystopian. I I was aimed there, but um, it sort of cooperated with my intentions. And anyway, it follows Willa Mae Wallace, who is a reaper. <laughs> she actually works for the blood contractor called Patriot uh, as a company phlebotomist. And um, she starts to uncover some things that um, sort to sort of lead her down a path to discover uh some truths that perhaps she wasn't supposed to be privy to. And that's getting much beyond that would be to spoil it. But um, I'm, I'm happy to talk about sort of the general themes and all of that stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No worries. So um, I guess a little bit of gushing. <laughs> Cause I have, I have, um, you know, read it. Or, or almost got there with it anyway. Um, a little bit of gushing over it. I, I have to say it is, a dystopian but it's the kind of dystopian that i love like it reminds me of say uh like brave new world and 1984 like those classic kinds of dystopians and and maybe less so you know like your hunger games and things that are very sort of dramatic and over the top this is more the um the kind of that sort of day-to-day uh, or at least from what i've read so far it's that sort of day-to-day mundane dystopia and i think that's something I find far more interesting is how do people go in the day-to-day life of a dystopian rather than, you know, some insanely lofty goals. And I mean, I know that it's not, it's not necessarily day-to-day because obviously like it deals with a whole other plot and it's really hard to talk about it when you're not allowed to tell the plot. Um,
1: and And it's, you know, I, I certainly don't want to put any restrictions on your podcast. It's your podcast, and you're you're free to discuss anything you want. I would just say that that, yeah, it, it is first of all, thank you. um i I did not necessarily have any of any particular dystopia or any really any tale in mind when I started writing this. Um, I had a particular goal in mind and what's interesting you brought up 1984. I of course read that in middle school or whatever and only a few days ago um, you know someone had asked me to you know do my elevator pitch for my book and say you know what would you say and I said it's 1984 plus Thelma and Louise plus gallons and gallons of blood with a grandma and a pink wig. I and love that
0: description. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. And, um, it, yeah, right. And, and of course the, the person responded, they were like, okay, sold on that description. Um, and I just hope it lives up to it. But, um, I actually went back and I, I downloaded 1984 my Kindle cause I hadn't, you know, I hadn't read it in 30 years or whatever. And, um, as I'm reading it, I, I could not believe some of the parallels, um, and look, I mean, you, you get a dystopia or a post-apocalyptic story. Themes are going to crop up that are common to those. But the way it was done, I was sort of like, wow, this is this is very much in line with at least the setup of the phlebotomist.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and that's why like I can I can see that um in in that sort of like the day-to-day workings of 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 oppression in that like more realistic sense because it's not always going to be the the you know the big battles and everything else like there's going to be the vast majority of these people's lives is going to be just day-to-day you know navigating through a world that we would find horrific
1: you know i wanted i wanted everything to be entirely plausible as far as the setup of this whole thing and i wanted it to be and and you know it goes to some pretty bonkers places, but it gets there. I, I, I hope that people who read it will say, you know, it went to this place and it felt earned. You know, I, I wanted to earn it. I wanted it all to make sense where it eventually goes and you, and you read it and go, wow, we got here, but all the steps to get there were there. It wasn't just some crazy leap.
0: It feels and- organic.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and so that's why, you know, one of my struggles was there's a lot of fundamental world building I had to do on the science of how how a blood trade would work and how the economy would work. And, you know, I, I had to I had to go through the the careful uh, procedure of dividing up my info dumps, so <laughs> so that they didn't end up in one in one place. Um but that was important to make sure that the groundwork was laid for this plausible scenario which plays out in this thing,
0: yep. and I think I think you've just sort of summed up why I'm enjoying the book so much because, it is that plausible sense. It's not insanely ridiculous. And that's, that's not to say that stuff doesn't happen or anything, but it's just to say that it's not this over the top, like action set piece. It's, it's, it's dealing with it on a, on a much more interesting level. And, and I think your research definitely shows. And I guess that leads me into my next point, which is to talk about world building. So, Like, where do you start doing research for a world like this? Like, obviously you get the idea for it, but like, where do you start with research?
1: Well, you know, I, I knew that blood was the linchpin of this whole thing. And this was a story that I had the idea one evening as I was going to bed, I drove to work the next day. I knew that it was all going to be about blood, and I can still remember exactly where I was in the car. I'm driving in, and I'm like, all right, so my my premise is there's you know, there are these donor stations that people have to go to to have uh, to have their blood harvested. and so they're basically you know blood banks, um, but they're sort of advanced, they're technologically ahead of where we are today, of course and there are people that work there. And I'm like, so who's my, it's so funny. You mention, you know, sort of the, the YA style dystopias because that was what was in my head. And as I'm, I'm driving to work, I'm like, all right, who, who are my, um, who's my protagonist? Is it, a, is it a young guy, is it a young woman, is it a, a maybe a, a young guy and a young woman? And instantly, as I said those words to myself, I was like, no. Who do you know, Chris? Who do you know? Who, who does the blood work when you go to the doctor? It, it has been, and this was just my experience, it was always these sweet older women. And I was like, that's who it's got to be. It's got to be the person I see in my head when I go, to, when I go and I get blood drawn for whatever reason. And I was like, that is just who's stuck in my head, that it it had to be an older woman. And what I liked about that was that, first of all, as I was driving, I was like, well, shoot, I can't think of any any dystopia or sci-fi right off the bat that has a grandmother as the lead. Um, no, now,
0: absolutely. I mean, if you go with the YA set, you can't find someone over the age of like seventeen that's the star of a a, right. a dystopian. So that's like the whole other direction,
1: right? You know, and there's certainly there's there are some you could call them post-apocalyptic or dystopias, The Road, um, the the Passage. You know, there's there's where there where older people are featured, but I'm talking, you know older like my age, like 40s or even 50s, but not front and center. There's not a lot of that front and center and especially in science fiction. Um, You know, the closest, at least in my recent reading, the closest that I've gotten to it is um, Christian Avasarala from The Expanse, who I absolutely love. And I think you would call her a a central character, but not not one of the main characters. and and she's older but so so that was kind of what i i latched on to and that really helped me to create the flavor for this because what you're going to see when you read this book is you're going to see the life of this person who has lived a life and how she had it how she has to navigate this world that you know she did not grow up in this world yet she's a cog in this machine and so it just it was just a fascinating you know premise to me and i really went from there i i ordered a uh, laminated uh quick reference phlebotomist blood guide and uh did a just a ton of uh, research on our good old internet um to get my fundamentals because if i was going to set up this premise on this society the premise had to be correct and um so that's really where i started
0: yeah and i suppose that that's right because you know it's dealing with legitimate science like i mean if you were to make like you know half of Star Trek and stuff like that deals with science. That's kind of made up and, you know, you can get away with that, but when you're talking blood types, you know, you kind of need to know what you're talking about. So like, yeah, obviously that research definitely pays off.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I, I did reach out to at least a dozen people who were blood experts, whether I found them on Twitter or through their websites, and it was actually very very hard to get people to talk to me because you know you come to them you are totally unknown you say you have a book um who knows what that means to them whether you're you know stapling pages together in your basement or you have a <laughs> legitimate book. and and uh and you say hey i need i need to know how to do a vein to vein transfusion I'm
0: um, like, oh okay. yeah.
1: Yeah, that's really tough. That's a tough sell. And but I did actually um get one one guy he who is actually a doctor, um, but he's on Twitter as the blood bank guy. And he's he's I mean, a, a leader in this area, and he is extremely busy. And he corresponded with me three or four times on email and kind of set me straight on a couple of things which I had them mostly right, but he made them not just right, but he, he added a little bit of nuance that people who know about this area will hopefully see and go, yeah, that's, that's how you would do it. Um, but you know, there's only so much you can do as a non-expert. You can read and read and read and read, but there's always a, a wall you hit and you just hope that you did enough to, uh, do it justice and get it right enough. And, and so far, um, so far it looks like that. In fact, there was a, a, a book blogger who actually is a phlebotomist who reviewed it and, and gave it high marks.
0: Oh, well that, that's good. Cause as, as, like, I mean, I, I don't know anything about it scientifically, but it, it, it rang true as I read it. And like, you've got, obviously you've got all that, um, you know, information at the starts of, of chapters that's telling you different um, things about blood and about all of the um, different types and all the information. And it, it, it definitely rang true to me. And I think it showed that that, that research really heightened the story and, and gave it a level of realism.
1: Yeah, thanks. I, I, I hope so. I, I um, initially, it was a great suggestion actually by my editor, uh, Gemma Krefeld at uh, Angry Robot. She, when I, when I turned in the manuscript originally, I had just titled each of the chapters with the term. It was much more sort of a um, ethereal feel where I just wanted the term to be there to sort of guide you, whether you knew what it meant or not. And she suggested, Hey, look, let's define each one because because if people don't understand them, it, it might actually cause them to check out a little bit, and it was a great point. And I just in the next draft, I I made them full definitions, and it really it it's been a um, it's been a high point for folks reviewing it so far in the sort of early reviews where they really like it, and it does add atmosphere. I think.
0: Yeah. No. no definitely. And it adds. I guess it adds that credibility that like, you know, you know what you're talking about. Yeah, well. <laughs> well, at, le- <laughs> like at least you've, you've me, let us think you know what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> hey, I know more about it than I ever, ever, ever thought I would ever need to. So, but, and I, I did, I did learn quite a bit. And it also, um, you know, uh, about after I sold the book, I uh, forced myself to start, giving blood regularly because it was something I never did because I hate the feel of the needle. I'm not afraid of the needle. I hate it. Just not a I fan. You'll it. No. But I was like, you know what? Um, you wrote a book called the phlebotomist about blood. You should probably start giving blood. And I did. And now I do it regularly. And, um, I actually, I really enjoy doing it. It's a super easy way to do something good, you know,
0: No, that's awesome that like, yeah, it's changed your life in real life as well as, as you know, it can change other people's.
1: Yeah, it certainly has.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I I wanted to circle back just a moment to the central character and the idea of turning her into an older woman. Um, I think when you, when you come across these decisions when you're writing a book, you know, you could think, oh, well, it doesn't matter if I make my character male or female or a certain race or I make them, you know, older or younger or, you know, you you sort of don't think about that while you're creating it. But it has this ripple effect that kind of changes everything. Because obviously, if you had, you know, a Hollywood movie ready, 16 year old running your story, there's going to be a very different um, like athletic ability, very different life experience, there's going to be a huge different um, set of skills and, and life experience that will completely change the story.
1: Yes, and that was something that I had to really work with because obviously there is some there is some action in this, and um, I, so I had to solve some problems. I had to make sure that you know this. This woman is uh, the main character, Willa May Wallace, is sixty-seven years old, and you know she obviously lives in a fairly um, tough world, and so I envision her as a as a you know a a tough person. So so she's got to be tough, but she's still an older person, and so. I had to make it plausible. This is not someone who's going to, you know, sprint down uh, alleyways and escape the bad guys, you know? Um, and so there's once or twice where she's gotta run, but it's not very far. And she, uh, you know, she sort of reflects on on how it makes her feel and those, those types of things. Um, but that's just a few times. The other, the way that I sort of worked around that was you know, in, in this world, there's, there's drones everywhere and that's how people get around. And, um, I wrote her as having been this sort of, uh, lover of driving when she was much younger. And of course now cars no longer exist, but she was a big driver. She loved to drive and she's you know, she reminisces about the fact that she was sort of a badass. Um, She got tickets, you know, she kind of took pride in it. And um, that sort of rekindles for her when she kind of bites the bullet and has to pilot uh, some drones. And so that's kind of how the action takes place where she's not having to exert herself in a way that would just not be believable even though there are always exceptions to age, obviously. Um, I mean, if you look at Instagram, (laughs) there's there's all sorts of people doing crazy stuff at all sorts of ages, but I wanted this person to be uh, a real person. And so the action scenes and so forth had to be plausible. And I was able to do a lot of that with the drone and her background as someone who you would expect to be able to uh, learn to do that and handle it and get by that way.
0: Yeah. And I think you sort of hit that sweet spot with like 67. Cause I mean, it's not like she's 93, like, you know, she'll still be able to move. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and no, I think,
1: sh- you know, she's in good shape. So it's it, but, but I also didn't want it to be where people would say, well, why was she able to do this? And I say, well, she does a thousand pushups a day and a thousand yeah. sit-ups and she does crossfit. Um, that's just not plausible.
0: Yeah, it's not. She's back flipping over fences, and you know yeah. that kind There's of none stuff. Of
1: that, none of that—that that you get in the in the YA dystopias, right? She hasn't yeah. learned how to. She doesn't learn how to shoot a longbow.
0: No, she doesn't. Well, no, they don't even learn how to do these things. They just know. They just inherently know how to do it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: So, I guess getting back to writing, because I mean, obviously, it's a finished product now. But how long ago did you start? Um, plotting out this story or like when you had the initial idea like how long did it take to go from the idea through to publication
1: well um i had i I (laughs) i remember some specific dates i'm not a person who remembers specific dates but i just for some reason it stuck in my head i had the idea on january 24th 2018 and i had an offer from angry robot i think like september 20th of 2019 and that's not a very long time
0: no i was gonna say that's that's a pretty decent turnaround
1: it's it's a very quick turnaround and the 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 way it got from a to z is kind of crazy because um this book i wrote this book in 73 days in in for the first draft and it was not terribly long. It was really a, I would call it a skin and bones plot burner. It was just all plot. I mean, there was, you know, obviously there was Willa. It had, it had all the elements that it has now. But I was so, I don't know, as a, as a, as a relatively new writer at that time, you know, I had written one full novel before this, and and four or five partials or almost finished novels before I got to the phlebotomist, and I was sort of overclocked on this idea that you have to keep things moving.
0: Yep. And no, I, I can understand that. So yeah. I guess I guess the image that I have in my head and this is going to probably sound a little bit catty, but I'm just going to say it the way that it is not to you, but to who I'm talking about. Um, but it's kind of like, sounds to me like you wrote a Dan Brown novel.
1: Yeah. I like mean, super
0: plot based. And that's what I said. It sounds kind of catty, but you know, you, you understand what I mean. <laughs> hey,
1: look, if this thing sells like Dan Brown, so be it. <laughs> you're happy with that. <laughs> you know, but, but you're right. It's, it's not a Dan Brown novel now, but no, but, what i had was very much you're going to get you're going to go a to b and then you're going to go b to c c to d and you're going to get taken through this thing and then you're going to put put the book down and you're going to wipe the sweat from your brow right yeah. um, and it needed more than that but but i got I, I i was so fortunate so what happened was i wrote it it was it was i queried this thing at 68,000 words, which is short as hell. The book, right now, as it stands, is 93,000 words. So, between finishing the first draft and then actually going through the structural edit with Gemma at Angry Robot, we added another, what, 25,000 words. And, or maybe, maybe it was more like 21,000, because by the time I went through it again, once I had the, once I got the offer from them, and I probably added 4,000 words to beef it up a little bit. But, um, so what happened was, and this is one of those kind of stories uh, for anyone who is trying to get a book published, which is, I, this was the second full novel I queried. The first one I queried in uh, 2016, maybe 2017. And I went to 90 or so agents with that, had some nibbles, but nothing. And So that was my first novel and, and it got shelved. Then I wrote several partials, just kind of bouncing around. And, but these were fairly well fleshed out partials. They weren't, finished but they are some of them are close and some of them may someday be finished because i still like some of the ideas but when i had the idea for the phlebotomist i i interrupted all that because it was so clear in my head and then it only got clearer as i started to write because of all the science stuff started to really fall together but but the problem with the phlebotomist from an agent perspective i think was one? It was dystopian, and I knew when I wrote this thing that there was a lot of sort of dystopia fatigue. Um, yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: Yeah, and and I I read dystopia like I read anything else, which is if a book looks interesting and I happen to pick it up and it's a dystopia, I'll read it. But I'm not seeking out dystopia right mm-hmm. i'm not seeking out space opera but boy if the book is good i'll read it and and so i knew when i was writing this thing that that there was fatigue out there for dystopia and then also the big trope the big spoilery trope there was a lot of fatigue for that too and so i knew i was going to have trouble with this and then it crosses a couple genres so i queried i queried the phlebotomist to over 70 agents, I got considerably more interest from it than I did from my first novel, um, but ultimately um, nothing panned out. And, and I also, the other piece is being fairly new to it, I queried it a little bit too early. There were, like I said, there was a little flesh miss, missing off the bone. Um, but I was so keyed up on making sure that you could sprint through it, um, that I hadn't done that. And then I just got really lucky because what happened was angry robot once a year, they do a, uh, they call it, uh, open the doors. They allow one month for unagented submissions. And I happened to see on May 31st of 2019, a tweet from them saying it's our last day for for sending in a manuscript i had i had shelved the phlebotomist three months earlier you know and moved on to the next thing and uh i was like okay you know screw it i'll i'll send it in i sent it in yeah (laughs) and then three three weeks later they asked for the full and then that was may and then september I'm sitting at the breakfast table eating some yogurt, and I happen to check my junk mail. And in my junk mail, in hotmail, is an email saying offer for the phlebotomist from Angry Robot. And um, that and I did the most gingerly move of dragging the the, the email into my inbox so I could read it. <laughs> And, um, and they had made an offer for it. So that was how it got the offer. And then over the next few months, uh, Gemma just, I mean, I'm so grateful because she understood this book. She's the one that acquired it. Um, she read it and she said, she, she, she was just like, look, I love the way this dystopia was set up. And then the big twist she was like, holy shit, all of a sudden, I'm in this other, this other thing and I love it. And um, she understood the book and she understood what it needed to be whole. And I, I still am somewhat in awe as to how skilled she was to go through, give me the bullet points of the things that I needed to do. And I willingly and happy, happily did them. Um, she, she gave me a, we, we did a Skype cause of course they're in the UK. I'm in, I'm in the U S and, um, where she had 25 things, 25 big points. And then of course she sent me the manuscript, which looks like it looked like it had, you know, red ink spilled all over it. Um, and I made all those big changes and then I went back through the manuscript and, and went line by line and it was a, it was a whole new feel to it. And I just, from, from the fact that this book found a person, a single person who was a fan of it, who signed it. And then that same person took it through the procedure of bringing it to a, a truly honed um, piece of writing. Um, you know, I I, I can't be any more thankful. (laughs) It's just not in me. I'm so grateful for that. Um, But that's really the journey it took. So um, it was finished up in early June this year and it went off to print.
0: Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And I guess, you know, it's it kind of ties into the previous episode that I recorded, which hasn't actually come out on the podcast just yet, but um, I was talking to Sarah Epstein, who's an Australian YA mystery um, writer and she was talking about her process and, and the whole theme of that episode was talking about how there's no one way to be published and you know there's some of this advice that you hear all the time of oh well you know you've got to spend 10 years doing this and you've got to do this and you've got to do this it doesn't always work that way and clearly with you you were able to find a publisher who was the right fit and who understood what the story was because you totally could have taken it to another author uh you could have taken it to another um publisher and said you know what do you think and they might have said oh let's adapt it into you know the next hunger games and you could have done that um, but it would have lost the soul that makes the story so great
1: yeah yeah so it's really
0: great that you were able to find that publisher that that understood the story and wasn't just trying to fill a hole in the market or fill an oversaturated market is what they usually try to do
1: Right, right. And of course, that was that was one of my one of my chief concerns was um, that, you know, there were sort of two two, to the genre and and the category and everything were a little bit overloaded. But, you know, for readers of this book, I I think whether they like it or not, you can come out of it, I think, and go, well, I never quite read that trope like this and i never quite read um uh, a dystopian or post-apocalyptic story with a main character like that
0: yeah and and you go first
1: no and and no that was it that was it
0: okay (laughs) um i was gonna say that moving on then to tropes i think that tropes is something really interesting to talk about because there's so much negativity around tropes and saying, oh, you know, tropes are the worst things and you can't include them. But I mean, it's kind of almost impossible to not include tropes because everything has been told before, but it's about how you do it. Um, But I think with tropes, like they can absolutely be your friend when writing. They can be a shortcut with things. It's about how you say, well, all right, how can I make this trope unique for my own story? Oh yeah.
1: I mean, look, the, There are some tropes that are just—they're never ever going to die, right? There's, there's uh, the the dragons, (laughs) there's, there's vampires, there's werewolves, there's zombies. I mean, there's a million things that are never going to go away, and and honestly, I think that there are. There are fundamental features of each of those things that for some reason, appeal to our nature as human beings either either an attraction or a, a revulsion, but it's a revulsion that we want to explore and you see how many different ways dragons are done, you know I mean dragons are I don't know. It, it almost makes me think maybe there were dragons at some point and we have some sort of atavistic like um, genetic predisposition to adore them because maybe they existed at some point. It's almost well, like that. And I mean,
0: people are always drawn to stories with dragons in them.
1: Yes. I mean, they are awesome. Let's be clear. They're awesome. I mean, they're pretty but amazing. <laughs> they're pretty. I mean, you cannot undersell dragons. I mean uh you know you cannot oversell them. Um and and so there's so many ways to do them and when they are used as a catalyst to tell another story, I think tropes can be great. You know, and like for instance, I just read Burn um by Patrick Ness, um which is a I mean it's crazy. It's a I believe it's set in 1957 u.s where it has just been part of history that dragons are here and they live in
0: canada (laughs) yeah and and like you take that idea and that's amazing like you take something that already exists but you kind of flip it and you know do something unique with it and that's the thing that like you can say okay stories about dragons but you know, the dragons in Game of Thrones are different to the dragons in How to Train Your Dragon, which even if you go fantasy stories, they're different to the dragons in, say, like The Witcher. You know, that's a different kind of dragon. Like, you know, you can can use that stuff and build off and create something new. And I think you kind of touched on it before by saying that you might have been dealing with certain tropes and certain tropes that were flooded in the current market, but you were able to shift them into different genres and, and, you know, mix things and blend things into something completely new.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you look at, um, for instance, so uh, Jonathan Stratham, I think he's, he's, he's an Aussie, is he not? Um, He just did a book called the book of dragons and it's uh, he run, he does the, he and Gary K. Wolf do the Cood Street Podcast, which is, which is very good. I listen to that several times a week because I'm catching up. And he just put out, he, he edited the Book of Dragons. It's got stories, all these different stories. And what's so incredible about it, and I've, um, I don't have the book yet, but it addresses dragons as a catalyst for discussing all these other things. And when you see how differently and divergently people handle dragons, even though they're all writing about dragons, it's just fascinating. And, and so that's why I love tropes because it's sort of like, we're all gathering around the campfire and everybody's got to tell a dragon story and it's always going to be different for every person. So, it's like uh it's like a common sort of a common thing we can all start with, and then it's how it's it's all about perception and it's perspective, how people see things so i I uh, am a fan of tropes; they are tropes for a reason
0: yeah, no absolutely, and I guess that kind of that dragon talk kind of reminds me of a video that I did on YouTube um, exploring the notion of a zombie and mm-hmm. and what's happened with the zombie because it's it's evolved um. And I went back as far as to say that, you know, zombies were originally like revered gods in like African cultures. Uh, And then it progressed to like the George, um, a Romero kind of, you know, that kind of zombie that we come to know now. And now it's progressed into things like, um, you know, the last of us, which has a different brand of zombie in and of itself. And, and they all stand for a different thing. Like the, um, George A Romero zombies were commentary on consumerism. Like, whereas the last of us ones are completely different again, and they stand for different things. Like you, you can have something stand in for something else. And I guess that's, that's something you could do in terms of a trope. If you were taking, say like, I don't know, vampires or something, well, they're constantly a negative source. So what if you flipped that and you made them something positive? Like if you made them sort of superheroes, like, there's a story that hasn't been told before.
1: Right. Unless you're, unless you're just the one single lone vampire who is blade, right? The, that
0: one, that vampire. one has been told before. Yes. No, you're right.
1: <laughs> but, but, but it's only the one guy, remember? Because well,
0: that's, like Yeah. What if you had he thousands was,
1: of blades? He was, some, I can't remember. He was some sort of hybrid or something, right? Like human mom and
0: it's been a long guy. time, but I think he was something like that.
1: <laughs> and, but, but that's, that's right. Is to, to flip it on its head, which, which I love. And in fact, you know, taking that, taking that point, you know, if, if the phlebotomist does well enough and angry robot wants to do a sequel, you know, the, I've, I've got the sequel, a third written already. And one of the lessons that I learn, um, and, and it's one of the things that I, I really internalized, and I internalized it from two, from two books. The first was, um, well, maybe I hadn't internalized it yet, but I appreciated it, was, you know, if you read Game of Thrones, the first book, you know, everybody's like, ah, we have our main character for our series. It's Ned Stark,
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> Good luck with that.
1: <laughs> right? And uh, and then he's murdered and you're like, well, I'm done with this because he was the main character. How are there five more books or whatever? And what I love is when a writer gives you what you think is the main story and it's not, but then they earn the right to tell you the rest of the story. And one of the, the best way I've seen that done, at least for me, that I really loved and still love deeply is The Expanse. Because The Expanse didn't really let you in on the fact that there was a big bad for a good amount of time. You knew there was some space goo floating around, but all the conflict was human-based, you know, and it was terribly interesting and compelling and fun and those first couple of books are what 800 900 pages and i was pounding through those books and um i love that and then you find out of course the space goo is this the is the space goo is the worst thing ever the protomolecule it's the worst thing ever and it turns people and objects into vomit and then into other objects and then you find out that the guys who sent the space goo, you think they're the bad guys. No, they were wiped out by even badder guys. And I love that when you when you get that reveal of the big bad, when it's been earned uh, to that point and the groundwork has been laid for it, and you're like, oh my God, this is far more sprawling than I thought it was. And it was already sprawling. I love this. And that sense of wonder is something that Going forward writing, I always want to try to uh, capture, especially if I'm writing, you know, a a big fantasy or a a big sprawling sci-fi, but it's those types of things. And and I love the switching of allegiances, where you think these are the bad guys, but they're trying to do something that actually is good for everybody, right? And you finally get that perspective. So I, I always have that in the back of my head.
0: I think you have just summed up like the number one thing that I love in storytelling. And actually it's funny because I was having this conversation with R.K. Gold. I mean, outside of the podcast that we did, I was just talking to him and um, we were talking about our favorite moments in sequels. And we were talking about how we can sort of distill it into this one idea of it takes what happened in the first one and said, while you were looking over here, this thing was happening over here. And this, that, that invalidates this thing and it's wrong. You didn't realize. And, and, you know, I guess the most cliched um, answer would be, you know, Darth Vader, no, I am your father, you know, that moment where it's just in that one second or that one line just expands everything. And you're just like, Whoa, I did not see that coming. Like I, I didn't know. And it just, and it's such a, an earth shattering thing too, that it changes the perception of everything. Like those yeah. are my favorite moments. And that's why I try a lot of sequels because I'm hoping for that moment where they take what I found about the first one and then just sort of like completely obliterate it. But as you say, in an earned way.
1: Yeah, yeah. It can't just go, here's the twist. Uh, they're all dreaming or everybody's a ghost.
0: And no one can do, no one can do I'm your father anymore because that one's kind of played out now. After Star Wars. <laughs> you, you just feel right. like you're copying it by then.
1: Right. I mean, you could have, you could have little reveals like that, but if you set up your whole, your whole uh, story with that as the big thing, you would be instantly laughed out of the theater, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, earn, earning it and flipping things on their head and then looking back and going, Oh man, they gave me every clue. They gave me every clue. I should
0: that's have that's the key. That's the key. Like I've had it with some stories where I'm like, I guess before I started really sort of looking into the mechanics of writing, I would read a story and I'd be like, yeah, okay, this should be an earth shattering moment, but it's just not resonating for me. It's not doing anything. And, you know, looking back at those things now, I can sort of say that it's because you go back and you're like, well, there's no evidence that this is coming about. Yes. Like it totally. just doesn't feel like it's naturally part of it. It feels like it's being thrown in as that sort of M night Shyamalan, you know, what's a twist.
1: Right, right. To- totally. I mean, like The Village is a great example, right? Yep. The, the Village, The Village, I actually loved as a movie for the first 85% of it. <laughs> right. It
0: just didn't need the twist. Right, it didn't.
1: It was extremely scary. It was really unique looking. It was, very, it, I mean, those like, creepy wicker people whatever they were um, with the with the red cloaks it was super cool and you know that's something i also have in the back of my head which is even if i have a awesome twist planned or an awesome sort of reveal planned do, does it actually is it cheap right is it cheap does it steal from the story and i think that like in the village it totally did it totally did. So what? They're a they're a village of Puritans. Like who gives a shit? Like yeah. <laughs> we've seen that, right? Um, let's stick with the monsters. I like the monster fight. Um, and to that point, you know, I was I was doing a um, a blog interview earlier today, and I was uh, I was typing my sort of answers, and I was thinking about different lessons I've learned from different writers, and one is um Martha Wells who has the extraordinarily successful Murderbot series and Murderbot people adore Murderbot and Murderbot is sort of escapist it's the 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 stories are very linear there's not a whole lot of oh wow gotcha moments or surprises it's an extremely solid Foundation, which is this character, this um, sort of jailbroke uh, security robot who who hacked his own uh, governor unit, right, and likes to watch uh, likes to watch television on his um his media you know his media feed, and so it's this what's central to Murderbot is in the plot at all. It's this character being placed in these situations, and. It's an incredibly good lesson to always just keep in mind, especially for someone like me who has been writing seriously for, you know, five, six years. That lesson is don't get away from the fundamentals of you got to have a good story and you got to have good characters because if, if your characters aren't good, no one's going to give a shit how ingenious your plot is.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Exactly. And I think that's something that I always try to think about because I think we've become so obsessed in this, you know, spoiler alert culture that like, you're not allowed to know anything about the story because it's going to blow your mind when you, when you actually consume the book or movie or whatever it is. Um, But you can have stories that people love that don't have any real twists whatsoever. Like you look at movies that people love, like, I don't know, you think of E.T. and Jaws and and Jurassic Park. They're all Steven Spielberg movies. I don't know why they just came to mind. But um, you think of those movies, like, they don't have big spoiler moments, but people love them. So, like, you don't have to have these big spoiler moments. Like, it's far more important that you have a character that resonates than you have some big moment like, you know, The Village or I See Dead People.
1: Right and you know the like for instance, so you know we've talked about the fact that phlebotomist has a spoiler, but that spoiler the the story isn't to build you up to the spoiler. the spoiler happens on literally on like page sixty and or or page seventy it's it's a it's a big deal, but the story is willa and her folks dealing with that issue that comes up that's the story and stories about them and um and and it is again that spoilery trope is the catalyst through which you know the story examines these issues of oppression and authoritarian government and rich versus poor and Uh, you know, dividing society so they squabble amongst themselves while the rich get richer and the government comes in and uh, takes your rights away, you know, while you're just trying to survive, you know, those are, those are, you know, the overarching issues. Those would be there whether or not we spoilered it, you know.
0: And that's, and that's something that I sort of say. And again, like, I mean, I feel like I'm bashing M. Not Shyamalan at the moment, but I don't mean to. But he's just the example that keeps coming back up. I saw The Sixth Sense not long after it came out, but the, the spoiler was given out by the time I actually saw it. Mm. And I really didn't care about the movie at all um, because I knew the spoiler. And that's why I'm like, if it's a good story, even if you're meant to not know the spoiler part, it shouldn't, like everything shouldn't hinge on that spoiler. Like knowing that spoiler shouldn't ruin the movie. Like most people, like I had some friends who I sat down with and we went and watched the original trilogy of Star Wars. Now they all knew the line, you know, well, they say, Luke, I'm your father. And I'm like, no, it's no, I'm your father. But that's because I'm a nerd. Um, But, you know, we went through and watched that movie, but that didn't hinder anything of their experience of it because you know the the spoiler isn't the entire story
1: yeah that's right and you know i think that i think that like M. Night Shyamalan is a great example because because for most of those movies if you know the secret it makes the entire movie worthless um and and i hate to say that because he's an incredibly talented filmmaker um, or I'm not even, you know, I, I shouldn't even be commenting on who's a, who's a talented filmmaker. I don't know shit about making films. I just know as a viewer, as, as someone who watches it, if the whole thing is a trick and you learn the trick, then then there just isn't a lot of point unless there is really, really something else going on there that's important to to see. And I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to think of some of his movies offhand to, to go, okay, is there one that I've seen and I've probably seen four or five, I guess, um, where there was some other issue where the spoiler wouldn't have ruined it for me. And I can't, th- I can't think of it offhand. Um, there was one, there was one, which was the one where the plants were talking to each other and Marky Mark was out there. The,
0: um, was it the happening? Is that what it was called? Yeah, I think
1: I think so. Right. And the happening, Again, here's the thing. when I've seen the movies, I thoroughly enjoy eighty five to ninety <laughs> yeah. percent and then and then there's the reveal, and I'm like, oh <laughs> no, really? Yeah. really? <laughs> yeah you know it's funny it's I, I I um recently had a short story published, and um you know sometimes depending on the venue, the editors will you know they'll make an edit and they'll publish it and you won't know. And, you know, um, most of the time it's done with your knowledge and and you're okay and all that, but sometimes they just, they'll, they'll, they'll make a, they'll make a quick edit. And, and I had one published recently where they lopped off the last paragraph and, and I was like, yeah, okay. I, I didn't, I didn't need that last bit at the end, even though for me, it kind of it kind of tied it in a bow. And I think of some of those M. Night Shyamalan movies and I'm like, if you just lopped off that last 10, 15%, it'd still be a super fun movie. Cause you know, as a reader and as a a consumer of films and stuff, I love walking away from it going, oh my God, my mind is blown. What was happening? Not, and, and, and I wanted to, distinguish that from being confused, right? Because if you walk away and they just confused you, that's, that's not what you want. What you want is to go, okay, I, I want to parse this out. I want to understand what, what really happened there. And, and for that puzzle to actually be solvable. I, I love that type of stuff.
0: Well, I, I guess thinking back, the, the last movie, I can think that kind of had that effect on me. Uh, and I don't know if you've seen it, but have you seen Hereditary? No. It's I, with, do you watch I, horror movies? So this
1: is so funny. So, I mean, The Phlebotomist is, I, I've said it's horror adjacent. Okay. Um, it, it has some horror elements to it. Um, and I probably 60% of my short fiction is horror. But movies, <laughs> horror movies, scare me. <laughs> and, and my imagination, while I'm lying there in bed going to sleep, I will see everything in the room. I'm 44 years old, <laughs> and I will absolutely freak myself out. And yeah. hereditary, I want to watch it so bad. And I think one of these days at high noon, while the sun is blaring through the windows with all the lights on surrounded by candles, I will watch Hereditary because it looks so
0: good. Just a, just a heads up. um, Yeah. Probably 70, maybe even 80% of it is like a family drama. Like it's actually predominantly not a horror movie. Um, But the thing I love about that um, is you follow the story and you sort of figure it out, but it does leave a little bit, to interpretation and discussion at the end. But the thing I love about it is when you go back and watch it again, there are things that happen that you didn't even see the first time around. Like, and to give one, that's not really a spoiler. um, But you watch the movie and it feels like it's just normal and everything's fine. But there is a moment in probably about five minutes into the movie where Um, Tony Collette and the family walk inside a house, right? And you'd think that's not a big deal. But if you're actually watching it again and you pay attention, you can actually hear someone run up the stairs and slam the door before they walk inside the house. (laughs) And it's, I guess that's the terrifying part of it is that I didn't notice that watching the movie the first time around. And then when I saw it the second time, I was like, that's kind of terrifying.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah, that's so good though. That is so good, and and it's funny because I, I don't have a lot of problem reading horror. The I, I will I will say that the, the only exception is House of Leaves. Um, House of Leaves is utterly, just, it, it's like it's like having your soul electrocuted. It it. It is confusing, but in a good way. It is, and it takes you several layers deep because it's, it's a story about a pile of letters about these people living in this house. And it's sort of a descent into madness. And the only place I will read that book is in a coffee shop surrounded by other people in the daytime. <laughs> so to give you an idea about where I am on horror movies
0: well I haven't read that book now but you know I've got to. you know I've got to now
1: (laughs) oh yeah it yeah absolutely I have it I have it right here um but yeah House of Leaves and it's 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 an absolute masterpiece um and it is done in um you know A letter format. There's there's letters. There is what's so good about it is it's a it's a documentary format where there is a now that I'm recalling it a little bit better there's a a paper written about this happening at this house and it's cited. It's like it's like a journal format and it's got citations to articles. And like Newsweek and USA Today and all of this stuff that are all fake; they're not real. But but it just brings so... in that that level of
0: yeah. authenticity that makes you feel like it's real. Because I right. guess when you when you say that, it makes me think of um, like Dracula and like um, Call of Cthulhu and all those kinds of things. And and I love that that side of things where you get um, you know these real like letters and journals and stuff like that that give it this sort of like almost the book equivalent of a found footage. Yes. Movie.
1: Yes. It, it, the, the Blair Witch, which I did go see by the way in the theater um, and it scared the shit out of me for months. <laughs> um, and, and I, you know, it's so funny because people were at the time they were being very macho about Blair Witch. They're like, whatever, that was stupid. That was dumb. And I'm like, my, I left my underwear in there. Like I, it blew right <laughs> off. my. Face. Like, I'm completely terrified. See, um,
0: I, I was a little bit young for the Blair Witch project, but I did go to see paranormal activity um, okay. in theaters. And um it, it started to get to me at the start, but I, I find that when I, I, I sort of work myself up before I see it. And I'm like, Oh, what if this movie is utterly terrifying and like, I had the same thing with Hereditary because everyone said it was so scary and it was so bad that I think I work myself up so much that when I start watching the movie, I'm like, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. It can't be as bad as, I've, as the image I've had in my head. <laughs> so that's you know, kind of how I operate with them. I,
1: I think you're right. And like that happened to me with It. Um, you know, It, it, it is, is sort of light horror, I would say, you know, when you compare it with something like Hereditary yeah. um, or Midsummer, um, which I also have not seen and probably will never, although I, I really want to. But
0: um, Midsummer is it's okay, but it's it's more gory than anything else.
1: Okay, I can handle that.
0: But it's not <laughs> like it barely even tries to be scary, so oh. you can handle that one. So maybe you could start with Midsummer and work your way up to Hereditary. But Hereditary is the far superior movie.
1: Okay. Okay. And, and I, I had heard that. I heard that. Um, what I liked about Midsummer, um, the concept at least is doing horror in the, in the day. In the light, middle of
0: the day. Yeah. You
1: know, Cause that, that takes the safety away from you, you know, the safety of the light. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, I could, I could, I could handle, I could handle it. That was not a problem and stuff like that stuff. That's like boo scary and all of that. I can, I can handle, but it's funny you brought up the, Sort of how the letter format um, and the documentary format can bring you deeper into a piece, it's funny because I just started reading Frankenstein um a week ago, and at least so far, I'm a third of the way through it. Um, you know it's done in letters, and even though it's kind of this you know victorian style writing that 's very kind of stilted and uh, very purple in places um, you still get that where you're several layers into it um, and even even that with some of the language that you know we don 't think in kind of the way they're speaking in in Frankenstein, it does bring you into it so it 's very interesting because it violates uh show versus tell. And and I think you know when people say show don't tell, that's a decent rule to try to work by. Um but I think I, I even think that RK Gold said something about that, if I'm if I'm recalling where
0: well because yeah I was gonna say we had this conversation. I couldn't remember if we had it on the podcast or not, but it's it's yeah. definitely I think with almost any writing advice, um, I think it needs to be seen as a guideline more so than um, a rule, because when you see it as a rule, you think you can never break it. But the Mm. problem is if you never break the show don't tell rule, then you end up with a story that feels like that sort of choppy, trying to be just plot, 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 plot. Right. Um whereas you've you've got to inject some of that stuff. And it's funny because if you show don't tell everything, sometimes the plots are actually gonna get dragged down.
1: Oh, totally.
0: Because if you, there are times where if it's a fast action set piece or something, or you've just got to deliver a piece of info dumping that's like two lines or something, you're better off to do that than to find some roundabout way where you've made five scenes to explain what could have been said in two lines.
1: There's absolutely every truth to that. you know, and I have made that. You know, as I'm drafting or whatever, where I've been in strict show don't tell, and then I've got five pages of just trashola that can be put into one paragraph. Give the reader what they need, and then move on. Um, and, and generally, I learn those lessons the long way because I do it. I do it the way you're told to do it. But then I, I've gotten to the point where I, I pretty much can catch myself and go, nah. we're going to pull out of this and and we're going to do a little bit of telling and that's okay.
0: <laughs> and I guess, I suppose it's probably part of of learning to write anyway, because you probably need those guidelines as you're learning to write. But then as you become more comfortable and more competent, you kind of say, okay, well, I, I know myself that I can get away with this now. Like, whereas if you didn't follow that rule when you were a beginning writer, God only knows what you'd come up with. Like it probably would have been 400 times you know what it would have been the other way around so
1: yeah well and you know the the writing process first of all every time you write it it, you know no matter what you're writing you're gonna your brain is going to branch off with every new word you write your brain is constantly going and it's going to throw options at you for every single word you write and that's at least for me, I discover so much about where the story's going that way. Even if I delete those 10 pages later, I, at least in my mind, the plot or the characters or what's happening or the dynamic, those things are crystallized. And so even if I end up deleting all of that, I got a lot from it. And so it's funny, you know, to get to A to Z, sometimes you have to hit all the letters and actually go through it all and write it all. <clears throat> and that gets you to the Z you needed to get at, but then you can go back and you can delete B through Y.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I think that's sort of the point that to new writers, I would say, follow these rules while, like while you are learning, but don't get caught in that rut of, you know, I will forever have to adhere to these rules or else, you know, I can't be published Or because it's probably actually going to hurt your chances if you just follow those rules anyway because you sort of then, you don't develop your own personal voice and your own personal style.
1: Completely, yeah, totally. And, and you know, it's, it's funny because I have, you know, before I came to writing, I, I've, I've, I've been doing um, art for a long time and I do... I do album covers for metal bands. In fact, I've done uh, one for a band in Australia called Sumaru. And uh, that was like three, maybe four years ago. And what I, what I learned, when I really decided, and it was like 2010, I really decided I was gonna focus on my craft. I'd always drawn, I'd always been an artist, but I, I, I needed to go to another level. And it was just repetition. And so that was a great, that taught me a few things. One is that yes, there are absolutely freaks out there. There are absolutely people, whether it is in music, art or writing, that are just talented. And I realized that that is probably a great minority of people that just get by because they're just so smart, they're so talented. The rest is all practice and it's all hard work. And the great thing about writing, why writing can be so rewarding, is that if you really dial in, you try to set aside your writing time every day or every couple of days, whatever you can manage, and you look at what you wrote three months ago, you will see concrete evidence of how quickly you're progressing. I mean, I did that just with my first novel. I would look at what I'd written a couple months earlier and go, "Oh my god, what moron of this." <laughs> <one."> right? <laughs> and so I I, I, love- I
0: totally get that feeling like cuz I I think I did that recently. I think I was digging through the cupboards and I found might not have been like the first draft of of something that I've written, but it was it was a very early one and I'm sitting there thinking what in god's name were you thinking when you wrote that like it sounded cliche it sounded awkward and and choppy and it just did not work at all and i was just like what were you thinking but it is nice to stop and take that step back and say no do you know what i've actually made progress because sometimes you do sit there and you think do i even know what i'm doing but then you have to stop and say well no i am actually learning what i learning you know how to do this
1: you know Art, visual art and writing are identical in this respect that I think any artist will tell you that the skill of art is not doing a color wheel or getting the right equipment or learning how to sketch the skill of art is learning how to see. Once you learn how to see you you can do art and what i mean by that is as a simple example you know sit down and draw a nose right well you realize pretty quick that you probably have no idea what a nose looks like you really don't until you actually look at a reference of a nose and you will and if you let go of your preconceived notions about what a nose is supposed to look like you'll draw the nose accurately if you set aside your conception of what flesh color looks like, whatever that is on any given person, right? If you tend to be a pale person, the colors you're going to pick, there's no, there's no skin color, you know, like the skin color crayon from the eighties, right? Which was only like (laughs) peach cracker skin, you know? Right. And, and no, you, you draw a pale person's, skin, you're going to have gray. You're going to have pink. You're going to have very dark red. You're going to have blue and green. If you draw someone's skin who has darker skin, you're going to have burnt ochre. You're going to have burnt sienna. You're going to have yellow, green, gray, uh, indigo. And, And So you have to set aside what you think you know, what you think you see. And writing is the same way, which is that you have to learn how to see. And that's really all it is, that once you have been doing it and you also are reading other people at the same time, you learn how to see. And so you learn how to see, wow, this, what what I thought was super genius before is actually quite a bit not. (laughs) But you didn't like, know. You when look you back at
0: your old work. You think, "Wow, this is total crap." Yeah.
1: Well, it's funny because I mean, even now, you know, I started a new novel on um, June sixth. I had been brainstorming for a while. I started. I sat down, and it goes like this for everything I write. And I've talked to plenty of other writers who experience the same thing, which is you sit down and you go through that first enthusiastic jaunt, and you're like, "This is good." this is really, really good. And 15, 20 pages down the line, a few days later, you look at it and you're like, uh, <laughs> hell hell <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, and again, then, you know, that's the period where, again, most writers will just say, look, you got to push through that because it's not as good as you think it is. And it's not as bad as you think it is, you know?
0: No, absolutely. And that's the thing that it kind of, yo-yos from your own perspective like if you're only looking from within your own head you will have days where you go between the two and you'll be like this is brilliant and then you'll go back and read it again you'll be like this is garbage and then you'll go back 15 minutes like this is brilliant so Uh, yeah it's yeah go ahead oh no i was gonna say it's just like sometimes you need that either space or you need that like external um you know feedback to to kind of ground it Cause yeah. when you're stuck in your own head, it can, yeah, just go back and forth.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, with the, with this current, this current one I'm working on, it's a pure fantasy. And my, my goal on this was I wanted to create a, a fantasy setting, a world that had never been done and that's kind of stupid. Um, and it's kind of a stupid, uh, goal because that's really hard to do. And it's really audacious and kind of pretentious to, to think that you could do that. Um, but my goal isn't to actually create a world and a setting that has never been done. It's to, it's to create a world in a setting that is a re- as original as I can make it. And I've been writing every day. I get up at five and I write every morning and every day it alternates. One day I'm like, this is great. And the next day I'm like, this is truly terrible. You should move on to something else.
0: And I think you're pretty normal there. I think that's pretty much how most people feel about their work. Um, Just to circle back for a second. It's interesting they say about drawing um, noses as an example, because like I am kind of like, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm great at drawing or like graphic design or anything, but like, you know, I I know enough that I can sort of do it as a hobby, but I thought, well, do you know what? Why don't I sit down and try to do more um, like cartoon style drawing? Because like noses in particular were always the thing that just did my head in and I couldn't deal with it. And anyway, I started watching this um, tutorial And it broke it down in a way that I've tried a million different times to draw noses and I could not get it to work. And this, this broke it down in a way that it just something clicked and it just worked. And it was looking at them in terms of 3d shapes. And it's like, you've got a sphere here, sphere here, sphere here, and then a line up the top. And it's like, there's your nose. And that's how you draw a nose. And I was like, where was that description when I was trying to learn to draw like 10 years ago? (laughs) Like, You know, sometimes you just need to sort of take that step back and like unlearn everything that you have learned, all the bad, you know, habits that you've picked up and just see it from a different perspective. And I suppose that's something that you can do with writing too. Like for the longest time, that show don't tell kicked my ass because it was just like, it was constantly there saying, no, 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 you can't, you can't tell that. You can't tell that one sentence. You've got to show a whole paragraph. so yeah i think sometimes it's 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 good to take that step back and unlearn some bad habits particularly that have come from common advice
1: yeah right and and you know it's just it's a matter of calibrating yourself you know it's and you calibrate yourself two ways really one is reading and the other is practicing your own writing right and you you do those, you get the reinforcement from reading stuff that's already been written and has gone through all of that. And you sort of, through osmosis, in a way you get a feel for what works and what doesn't and what rules, it's fine to break and when to break them, right? And, you know, when I, look, when I went, when I wrote my first novel, which is, you know, in a closet, um, I went through and did an adverb search and like deleted 99% of the adverbs.
0: Yeah. because and everyone. Well, that's a funny thing too, because I mean, I, I don't know about American schools, but I know in Australian high schools, like when you're taught writing, or, and even in, in primary schools, like when you're taught writing, um, there's a lot of focus on adverbs and teaching adverbs, because obviously kids need to know what an adverb is. So they have to teach it, but it's like in writing, you shouldn't have adverbs, like as little as possible anyway. Um, so like there, there is stuff that you are trained at school that, um, that underpins your, your writing ability too. So like there's all sorts of stuff, even if you haven't considered writing and haven't looked up writing advice, like you will have been taught things in your life that is terrible advice for a writer.
1: Well, you know, and to me, there's no more powerful um, type of word than an adverb if it is plunked down right where it needs to be. Um,
0: yeah, and that's the, that's the other thing, isn't it, too? That it's like, okay, but don't take that as, like, never have an adverb because that was something that I'd do too. And I was like, yeah, but you can't use adverbs.
1: Yeah, I mean, I deleted all my adverbs. You know, I did all, all sorts of dumb stuff with with that first book. And and it's it's funny because you know, that first one, I wrote it in like 10 months and then I edited that thing for over a year and I had, I had freelance, a freelance editor, a freelance proofreader, a friend I did a, I did a art trade with. I illustrated her book and she, she, uh, edited it. It just was, it was just a, a first book. It, 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 it probably should have never, I probably should have never gone through all of that effort. I mean, I certainly learned some great lessons from it. When I say shouldn't have gone through the effort, I mean of like querying the thing. But I can't go back in time and give myself that advice and say, hey, Chris, like, trust me, th- this, this is not ready. Because I didn't know that. I did everything I could um, to get it to a place where I, it was the best thing I could produce at that point. And it still wasn't going to be good enough, but I didn't know that. And I just think that's probably a rite of passage that everybody, you know, who who wants to write has to go through. And and I still consider myself extremely lucky, you know? I mean, the second full novel I wrote um, is a book now. Um, But there was a lot in between that first one and this one. (laughs) A lot of those stops and starts.
0: But I still think that you've come out with a great attitude towards that in saying that, you know, I have learned so much from doing that. So yeah, sure. It might not have led to success at least at the moment because you could always dig it up later. And, and I think yeah. I said in the last episode, um, talking to Sarah Epstein, I said that um, the first book that comes to mind is Stephen King's under the dome. Like, he had worked on that for the longest time and he couldn't get it. So he put it away and then he'd bring it back and he'd work on it later and he'd bring it back. And then there's that hilarious story when he was explaining it to, I think he's his sister-in-law and said, yeah, yeah. So, you know, this dome goes down over the town and whatever else. And she said, yeah, you mean like the Simpsons movie? And he was like, Oh shit. Um, (laughs) But you know, he spent all that time and he kept coming back to it. And I think that's something that, that writers do need to realize is even if it takes a, you know, from the ground up, rewrite like don't write it off as a waste of time because you could always come back to that
1: practice is never a waste of time right and and as far as like old projects i you know i've got i've got four or five maybe six now that that are sitting in folders on my hard drive and of those four or five or whatever two or three of them continually come back to me and that is because there is a kernel of something about them that is compelling, whether it's the premise or a character or the overall kind of plot idea. And I think that, that we should trust ourselves as writers, that if, if you do you know, regularly think about one of those stories that you've got sitting in a bin, um, it's probably worth coming back to and working on once you've honed your craft even more, you know, that first novel that I've written, I, I love that novel. I love a lot about it. It's, it is enormously flawed, but those flaws, now I can kind of see them and before I couldn't. So I, I, I see it in my future, hopefully, to come back to that one and do that ground up rewrite which before was incredibly daunting and now doesn't really seem that way. That's just part of the work. So, you know, it's every minute spent writing, whether you end up with words you can sell or publish or whatever, is absolutely worth it. It's just like taking batting practice alone by yourself, right? Those home runs you hit, <laughs> I've never hit a home run in my life, but those home runs you hit, they don't go on the scoreboard. They they go in your experience.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I've had so much fun talking to you about this, that and everything else. Um, I am definitely, I've actually already looked up um, House of Leaves on Google. So I will be going to go and check that out like right now after we stop this conversation. Um, But before we go, would you like to tell everyone um, where they can find you and where they can get in contact with you if they wanted to know more about the phlebotomist?
1: Yeah, of course. So my um website is just chrispaneteer.com dot com. And that has links to all my writing stuff and all my art stuff. And I'm on Twitter at Chris J Panatier and Instagram at Chris Panatier. Um but for the writing stuff, it's primarily the the Twitter and the the website. And you can find me and I love to I love talking to anybody about writing or books or whatever. I think that especially now with um with a global pandemic and uh particularly my country being uh so much deeper underwater than everybody else's we are isolated from each other and writers are already isolated so i think that um reaching out and establishing those lines of communication between Writers, between readers, um, between people who advocate for either writers or readers is extremely important and it's good for our mental well being so I'm happy to answer questions or chat with anybody anytime.